Welcome to Growth Over Easy, the podcast where we explore the depths of life with an optimistic lens. I'm your host, Lily Rachels, and I believe pain has the potential to produce more growth than happiness ever could. I teach you how to grow through grief and give you actionable tools you can start using today. It's time to choose growth over the easy path in life. Let's grow together. Welcome back to Growth Over Easy. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Shahana Alibi. She is a doctor, TEDx speaker, mother, and she's all about stripping stigma and shame from mental health. In this conversation, we get into her own personal experience with postpartum OCD, as well as emotional well-being for adolescents. You're not going to want to miss this one. I learned a lot. You will too. Let's go. Welcome, Dr. Shahana. Thanks so much for having me. And also, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Forgot to say that when we first got on the phone together. It was like, it's your birthday. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Well, I couldn't think of anything better. It's great to have a conversation with somebody like-minded. You speak a lot about mental health, specifically postpartum. What led you to that? Yeah, so, you know, the truth is is my own experience, but I think now I can say it's getting comfortable talking about my own experience. You know, I think all of us, we live with these covers, almost like book jackets on us, things that we hold to be true, but we're too scared to show anybody. So we end up ending up removing the book jacket and walking around naked in some ways. And finally, I realized to myself that it's time that I I start speaking my own truth. And for me, It was this idea that I had hidden a secret, a secret that I had since the age of four or five of where I experienced thoughts that I really didn't want to experience. Now, on the other side of having gone through medicine, I know them as intrusive thoughts. So they can be thoughts about, could you do hurt or harm to your family, for example? And those thoughts would be, you know, what the medical word calls ego dystonic, which means that they're extremely terrifying. You don't want to have these thoughts. But it's very much akin to don't think of a purple elephant. Well, you just keep thinking of the purple elephant. And I think a lot of us can attest to this, but those who have a diagnosable condition, i.e. OCD, but the form of it is pure OCD, where you don't have the compulsions. Most of us recognize OCD on movies or TV as people who are checking things a bunch of times or very worried about contamination, i.e. washing their hands a lot. You know, the hard part with pure OCD is that you don't have those telltale signs. All you have is the thoughts, which means that ultimately it goes hidden. And ultimately, the person who's going through it is drowning in their own shame and stigma. And that was exactly my case too. So like I said, the symptoms began at four or five. This was now 33 years ago. We didn't know anything about pure OCD then. Fast forward the clock until I sat in one of my first psychiatry lectures at UBC Medical School and a screen flashed before us on the types of obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think I might've been chatting with my friend at that time, just a typical psychiatry lecture. And I suddenly said, maybe just pay attention here. And I looked over at the screen and sure enough, the footnote on the bottom of the screen said subtype pure O OCD. So I immediately Googled it and said, okay, I need to know what this is. 
And it was this moment of sheer relief, this moment of this thing that I had been struggling with completely in silence, feeling it like it was like the beast on my back constantly actually had a name, actually had a diagnosis. And if it had those two things, the hope was that it had a treatment as well. So I rushed home and called my fiance and my now husband and said, I'm not crazy. This is a thing. And I think if I learned anything about mental health, I tell all my patients, I say, you know, you want to be and you are unique as a snowflake. But when it comes to mental health, none of us want to be unique. None of us want to sit in front of a doctor and be told, oh, that's odd. Or, oh, I've never experienced that. We want to feel belonging. And even if I don't know what the diagnosis is right away, if I hear a patient tell me after going through my own experience, the most important thing I can do for them is lean in, lean in, make eye contact with them and say that we're in this together until we figure this out. Because it's not like having a a broken ankle or a rash or so many of the other things that I see, which is completely and totally acceptable. When somebody tells me their story of a first in mental health, it often comes along with a lot of courage. And it does. And I think it's very brave of you to speak on this because I feel like mental health is something that so many people experience like, you know, different, whether they have a diagnosis or different things, but it is, it's like, if you tell someone you have cancer, everyone rushes around to support you. If you say, I, you know, have been diagnosed with depression or bipolar disorder or OCD. It's almost like people kind of, they hesitate. They step back a little bit because they don't understand it. Exactly. Exactly. We've come to a point in our society, thankfully, where I think the words depression and anxiety are much more comfortable. We can get around that. We can kind of work with that. But the minute I talk about bipolar, schizophrenia, OCD, suicidality, no. That's too much. People take a big step back. So part of the reason I decided to tell my truth and not hide behind the cloak of just postpartum anxiety, which is much easier, rolls off the tongue much much more nicely, I should say, was for that reason exactly, was to say, you got to take baby steps. I was recently talking to a friend about this. You know, like I said, all of us might have this kind of secret or something that we're harboring. You know, I don't recommend if that's not your choice to go out the next day and, you know, tell the world exactly what it is. For me, it was baby steps. It was my TEDx talk first where I used the words panic attack and postpartum anxiety. And then it was on a podcast a couple of years later where the actual interviewer actually kept pushing me. And finally, I said, actually, I need to be honest with you. And when I was, it wasn't like the world fell apart. No glass broke anywhere, you know, like it was just the world kept going. It was, but all I was left with was this immediate sense of relief. Can you speak to like what you felt when you were experiencing the postpartum OCD, like signs, symptoms, like what was your experience? Yeah, 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 for sure. So I think the key part is that it's very difficult to recognize. For me, like I had said, I was coming into the postpartum period with a history of pure OCD, which put my risk, if I had actually paid any attention to it, at a sky high level. Do you need to have signs and symptoms of OCD prior to the postpartum period to get postpartum OCD? Absolutely not. 
So you could be completely free of any sort of anxiety and depression, have a baby, and then afterwards start to experience these signs and symptoms that we'll get into. And if you just think about it as two big umbrellas, if you think about the main overarching umbrella as perinatal mood disorders happening anytime from conception to postpartum, you can divide that into depression and then into anxiety. And if you kind of flush out anxiety, typically postpartum OCD would fall underneath that branch too. But like most of us, we've heard postpartum depression or baby blues. That's extremely, those terms are so common. Only now are we starting to talk more about well, how else can mood disorders appear like? I must say too, it's not just for the person having the baby, it's for their partner as well. This is not just for the one who's actually going through the pregnancy and the delivery as well. Their partner can be equally affected as well. So in terms of signs and symptoms of just the postpartum OCD, this can come into three big categories. And one of them is safety. So it's it's the idea that you, could you hurt or harm your child, right? A lot, that's probably the most common flavor of postpartum OCD. And for any parent, you want to think of the thought that would bring you to your knees, that would cause you to hit rock bottom, and it would be that thought. And it's not that thought once, it's that thought over and over again. But that thought is silent. Nobody can recognize that thought. So what behaviors does the parent take in order to mitigate that thought? Well, it could be things like only wanting to be with the child when somebody else is in the room, never wanting to be left alone. It could be things like hiding any sharp objects when the child is there. It could be things like avoiding carrying the child up and down the stairs for fear of dropping the child, like all those types of things too, but subtle, extremely subtle. There are different types of postpartum OCD or pure OOCD, I should say, if somebody is very religious or that's very important to them. They might start having religious thoughts that start to really uh, cause them a lot of concern or distress. So that's another very common one. But I think the key point is that when they've done a study, when they actually looked at new parents and they asked them, how often did you have an unwanted thought relating to hurting or harming your child? 97% said they did. So it's not the thought that is uncommon. It's the perseverance of the thought. We all have those weird and wonderful thoughts that just come and go. But those who actually have this, have the pure OOCD postpartum, are the ones that cannot get rid of the thought and are so guilt-ridden by the thought that they start to take behaviors to avoid the thought. So the best thing that a practitioner like myself can do now is actually ask a new parent outright, are you having intrusive thoughts? We have to just be comfortable with saying the words. Say it as a counselor, as a therapist, as a support worker, because I guarantee you a new parent that is sleep deprived and doing everything for that child is not going to volunteer this information because the biggest fear they have is that if I tell you, you're going to tell me that and fill in the blank. You're going to take my child away from me. I'm, I'm labeled as crazy. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago where a mom that uh, was in our community took her own life because of this, that I decided to speak up because we need to stop this shame and stigma spiral because literally women and men are, we're losing lives because of it. Wow. What you just said, someone taking their own life due to this and because it is something that's so 
hard to talk about. I'm trying to like put myself in the shoes of someone if I was going to have to say like, I'm thinking about like having these thoughts about hurting my own child like that. That's heavy. Once again, we talk about societal norms, right? I think it's even a little bit easier. I'm not going to say that it's simple, but it might be slightly easier to confess that you were having those thoughts for yourself. Mm. We can even go there. But to then say about your child is in a completely different territory. And why do you think I've stayed silent for so many years? And it was actually an actress across the pond over in that or over in the UK that recently reached out to me on Instagram and said, I listened to your podcast and thank you. This is what I have. Finally, I have words for what I have. And she now posts regularly. And I love following that because she's so open and vulnerable. But it's like one person gives the courage to the next and she has a much bigger platform and she can carry this message forward. So I was just so touched and inspired by her vulnerability as well. But this is what women need to do for other women, for other parents, for other partners. Yeah, because things fester in the dark. I feel like when we shine a light on something and we're willing to be vulnerable, it's amazing how things can change and we can get rid of that shame and the stigma. Yeah. So if someone is experiencing this, they're experiencing the intrusive thoughts. So not just like you said, not just a one-off, like maybe I had this thought and then it passed the thoughts that are happening over and over again, and they're altering their behavior due to the thoughts. What is kind of the next step if they come to you and tell you about this? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, I give them the diagnosis. I say that they're not alone in this. I remember the therapist that I went to that specialized in postpartum OCD. Her office was filled with moms who were doctors, lawyers, accountants, PhDs, these high level professionals who used to come to her office in absolute tears thinking that she's going to take their child away. And she said, the happiest day was me telling another professional or another mom that I have an office full of moms who are feeling the exact same way. So saying that once again, you are not alone in this. So giving them a diagnosis, because I'm not saying labels always work, but in this scenario, sometimes you do need to say, this is a thing. You have not made this up in your head. So giving people that peace of mind, that comfort, telling them that Oftentimes, as are when we're dealing with more moderate to severe mental health issues, oftentimes it's a mixture of medication and specific counseling. And then we have a conversation about that. But the first step, if anybody is even considering this or worried about somebody else, reaching out to a helpline, reaching out to their physician, reaching out to the counselor but I'm hoping that I've given you some words now, you know, postpartum OCD, postpartum panic attacks, anxiety, depression, things that you can even go and do some searches on to say, does this resonate with me? Does this fit? Um, Because when I was going through it now, however many years ago, I didn't even have the right language and I was in the profession, right? So it just shows you how difficult it can be. Is there anything that can trigger this or bring it on? Like, do we know like where it kind of comes from and why it shows up sometimes postpartumly? Yeah, very, very good question too. So for someone like me, who was basically born with it from the age of four or five, they've shown on functional MRIs that those who have OCD or even pure OCD have adherent brain loop that they can't shut off. And they actually can show pictures of that on a functional MRI tracing. So there is a structural component in the brain. And then also with the postpartum time period as well, I think 
I always say the postpartum period is the most fertile period in the sense of any traumas and any sorts of things that you have buried way, way, way down deep. Those are the times that things are going to resurface. You're dealing with absolute sleep deprivation. You're dealing with a change in identity. You're dealing with this time where you really don't know who you are, let alone how to take care of the baby. And then you add on hormonal changes to that too. So it becomes this beautiful, fertile ground for so many of these mental health conditions to foster as well. And I also have to say, you know, here I was a woman who, you know, had good support. I had a very supportive family. I was in medicine myself. I knew who to reach out to. I had the finances to see a counselor. We really do have to pay special attention to those parents, to those patients who don't have those resources who are in domestically abusive relationships, who do not have the support financial or otherwise. You know, I consider myself extremely privileged and I sat silent for years. So, you know, that's part of my, the reason why I'm pushing this and the reason why I speak so freely about it too. And forget the postpartum time period. My work now involves talking with adolescents. So, you know, whether we're dealing with bipolar or schizophrenia or such crippling anxiety, they can't get out of bed, I can now speak a very common language. And they often will look up and say, they look at me a bit differently. You know, I'm not just reciting the DSM-5 criteria anymore. It's something more, right? And that to me is probably the most powerful way I can communicate with my patients. So I would love to pivot to that because you do work with adolescents now. What do you typically have kids that come to you for? Yeah, so we, I work at one of the largest youth health centers in all of British Columbia in Canada, where I'm based too. So we see 500 new patients a month, which is 100 new patients a week. Anybody between the ages of 12 and 24. And we see everything like it's a full service walk in clinic. Uh, like from a stub toe to a ward on their toe to everything in between. But really, at the end of the day, mental health and sexual health are at the forefront of what we see, too. And I think because of the notion that we can give more time, you know, these are not seven and a half minute appointments. They can be as long as an hour. If everybody in the waiting room kind of knows that there is that kind of secret uh, alliance that this is the way that this clinic works. And that's why I love it so much, because You can't expect fast food medicine when you're dealing with mental health, let alone physical health, but especially mental health. I had a patient the other day who was addicted to crystal meth and both of her kids got taken away from her and she came in for a mental health assessment. Sure enough, on paper, she was depressed. We don't have a blood test for depression, but did her scores meet the criteria? Absolutely. But then looking at me for a diagnosis and I'm saying, you're addicted to crystal meth. Both kids are taken away. You've been homeless for the past year and you're two months postpartum and you had a baby while living on the streets. Like, of course, of course, you're not sleeping well. Of course, you feel hopeless. Of course, you feel down. Like, you know, we have to look at the person's context. It'd be very easy for me just to say, here's a prescription for Ciprolex next. That's not the answer. I said, I need to know about you. And 45 minutes later, I got to know her a little bit better and know what her motivations were and know what her goals were. For me, that's a successful appointment. And to keep the conversation coming so that she knows she can come back and we continue to chat and it not just be a signature at the bottom of a prescription pad. I love what you said about not offering fast food medicine for something bigger because I see that a lot here 
And when I worked in therapy a couple of years ago, it was kind of, you know, get the diagnosis quick and, you know, send them on maybe to the, you know, medical provider if they're going to get a medication, but everything, it was too fast paced. And I don't know if you see this in your practice, but what I saw a lot was a lot of these things like the depression, the anxiety, we were treating the symptoms, but not diving deeper into like the underlying trauma beneath what was going on. 110%. Exactly. And we're looking at these children's lives that have come in with more complexity than I've lived in my now 37 years. You know, they have come in and out of foster care, foster foster care houses, changed schools too many times to count, you know, and I will often use the words if I say, if I use the word trauma, does that, did you react to that in any way? That's a very broad kind of question, because I also have to realize that I don't have the training to really dive deep into trauma, but I do need to understand a little bit of it too. And I would say 95% absolutely say, yeah, sexual, verbal, emotional, physical, you know, check off the box sort of thing too. So we have to realize that their age is not an indicator of the amount of life they have lived. They've actually lived a lot more life compared to any one of us that have grown up in a typical American family household, right? So I think that's really important to keep in mind too. But I feel that For me, I'm one cog of the wheel Uh, as a physician. We have social workers, we have therapists, we have nutritionists, we have all nurses, we have all of these people. And for them, I think having a trusted adult, someone that they can, a place they can go to and feel safe and be themselves is, you know, for us, the biggest success of our clinic. I love that. And again, I, I like what you said. It's looking at that they've lived this life experience, these kids that are you know, in and out of foster care, the different things they've experienced, it is very different. Like I look back at my own life and I had my own share of things that happened, but it's like, there was stability in the sense of like, you know, I had my mom and dad, I had, you know, I, school was the same, this was the same. And with so many things being different. Well, exactly. And then you ask about coping mechanisms, right? So it actually you end up as if you're having this wheel go down a hill, you just gain momentum in terms of negative coping styles. So, you know, an experience happens to them at a young age, and then they start to, you know, maybe are starting to use some pot, and then pot leads to something else, then we're starting to enter a gateway of substance abuse. And I asked so many of them, how are you sleeping? Well, they're going to bed at 4am every morning, they're on their devices, you know, they're just eating things processed packaged foods. So I gave a presentation to them once and I showed them uh, just a typical desk. I said, what's holding the desk up? And they kind of looked at me and said, I don't know what's holding the desk up. I said, well, the legs of the of the desk are holding it up. I said, I can put any prescription for sertraline and fluoxetine or Ciprolex on that desk. But unless you have sleep and social interaction and movement of any sort, and some semblance of a good diet, that prescription is just going to slide right off, right? So for them, it was this analogy that we need to hold true to some of the things that we kind of practice every day, but how can I instill it in a very small way, in a non-judgmental way for them? That is a great analogy. I had a client that came to me once and she was on a few different prescriptions for depression, anxiety, a few other things. And she had had experienced some very heavy trauma in her earlier life. But I remember looking at her and I was like, when's the last time you drank some water? And she just looked at me. She's like, I don't know, maybe four days ago, I've just been drinking soda. 
And it was like, when I feel like there is that missing piece, like, you know, are you getting some good sunlight? Are you drinking water? Are you sleeping? Are you just taking care of your body so that it can in turn take care of you? Exactly, exactly. And we live in a society where we just want a silver prescription fix, forget a silver bullet fit, but like we we want that quick pill fix, like, okay, my hair is falling out, here's a pill for that. I've got a rash, here's a pill for that too. And it feels very much like that. I also work in a regular family practice office too, but it's like we're playing baseball. Someone throws me the ball and I just whack it every time. Okay, like, what are you going to give to me next? Here's a pill for that. And you need to go Actually, some of this stuff just takes longer, but I often will joke with people. I said, I don't want to give you the side effects from the medication. That's going to cause you a whole nother set of issues too. Let's work on some of this fundamental stuff. And it's stuff that we might take for granted, but it actually, it's cumulative right? It really is. So starting small and working up somehow. And I have a lot of youth, I give them exercise prescriptions. I give them sunlight prescriptions. I give them sleep prescriptions. They don't like it, but we we work towards that somehow, right? So if someone's listening today and maybe they're, and you can answer this in two parts if you want, because maybe they're, you know, the mom that just had a baby that's struggling with this, or maybe they have an older child who they're seeing some mental health things coming up for them, like whether it's the anxiety at school, or maybe it is more depression, or maybe a different kind of diagnosis, what would be kind of your words to them? I think a lot of the times, especially as a parent, if I can kind of pull at that thread a little bit, when we have our child suffering, we immediately take it as a hit on us, as if we have done something wrong, as if we could have changed the outcome somehow as if it's a deficit on our part. And that's the one thing I count parents on a lot, that this has nothing to do with you. You know, I'm sure we're all trying our best. And a lot of the times the parents might be suffering silently with their own mental health issues. And I think the overarching piece I try to educate anybody on is when we're using these terms, anxiety, depression, it doesn't mean what you feel has to have a diagnosis. It is normal, just like that example I gave you of that young mom on the streets who's homeless. Anybody in that situation would feel depressed and anxious. That is very normal. So we need to stop medicalizing every single emotion we feel. I always say, just because you mention it doesn't mean I need to medicate it. I had a girl the other day who said, every time I stand up in front of the class to give a little speech or whatnot, I get nervous. And she said, my youth worker said, I need some medication for that. And I said, well, like, and, and, and she's like, no, that's it. I said, well, after you give your little talk, are you okay? Oh yeah, I'm fine. I said, do you think anybody else feels nervous? Oh yeah, I'm sure everybody feels nervous. I said, so then, like, you know, so we kind of had this conversation, but we have to be careful in our society about how far the pendulum has sprung the other way that the minute you feel a bit anxious, you're like, I need to get on a pill for that. The minute I feel a low mood, I need a pill for that too. So all of these facets of teaching to answer your previous question, I need to bring into that, give them the lens of that. Like, where are we at? Is it affecting their day-to-day quality of life? Like, like we talked about, how are they sleeping? How are they moving their body? Or how are they doing at school? Don't take it as a hit against yourself as a parent too. And how can we start small? And a lot of the times it, you know, talk therapy is one of the best things that we can do. 
I recently was re-engaging with my counselor after a long time. And my I've got three boys, seven, five, and three. And my middle was like, well, mommy, what are you doing? It was a Zoom meeting. I said, I'm talking to a counselor. What's a counselor, mommy? And we had this discussion. And I think it's really important that we we are still, there's still a stigma about, why are you seeing a counselor? Like you, nothing's wrong with you. We wait until the car is broken. But I would never hesitate to tell my kids I'm seeing a personal trainer. That would be totally fine too. So even starting this dialogue at a really young age that what happened to mental health prevention? What happened to even practicing? Just like you practice riding a bike, we need to practice talking out our feelings. You're not good at it the first time you do it. That takes skill. And a lot of the times people will say, I don't know what to say. Well, then practice, practice, right? We live in a society where we wear these cloaks of, a four-letter word, which I call fine. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm okay. I'm fine. It's sheer self-abandonment of how we feel because we just exist. We don't feel, right? So I think therapy is not a one-off. It takes consistent practice. And that's probably the first place to start for most people. I completely agree with everything you just said. I was like listening and nodding. I'm like, yes, this is, yes. And I, I had a friend who years ago, I remember her saying that her and her husband They go to marriage counseling once a year, unless something more comes up. And I was like, oh, well, why do you go once a year? She's like, because you go to the doctor, you get your teeth cleaned twice a year, you do all these things. Like, why aren't you checking up on this? And I kind of think of the same thing as therapy for me. Like, sometimes I go for something very specific, but I also go on, you know, kind of the occasion, whether it's, you know, bi yearly, yearly, or whatever, because I'm checking up on myself and I'm taking care of myself. And then also what you said, not did you say not every mood needs a medication? Yeah. So basically, just because you mention it to me doesn't mean that I need to medic medicate it right away, right? So just we need to realize that emotions are just the palette of colors in your life, right? Paint with all of them. Don't just feel like you need to paint with the bright colors. Then mm-hmm. otherwise you wouldn't see any definition in your picture, too. Cause that's one of the premises that I I try to teach my youth and I try to teach myself more than anything is that there's no such thing as a good or a bad emotion. I don't know about you, but I certainly wasn't allowed. I wasn't allowed to feel the bad emotions. I remember boredom in our house was a four letter word. Like you could not be bored at all. So so when my child first started getting angry as as they do, I took it as a hit against myself. I said, you're not allowed. That's not, you're not okay to be angry. And suddenly I thought, wait a second, he's trying to tell me something. You know, emotions give us information. And that's part of some of my, the work or my body of work is trying to design what does the science of emotions look like? I could go to a library and read about engineering and math and the science of the human body, but how often are we taught the science of emotions? And yet every single one of us can't go a second of any day without feeling, hopefully, something, even if it's nothing. Even the absence of something is something, numbness, right? So I think that's where I try to focus a lot of my work, my writing, my teaching, and my speaking. I think about the children's movie. I don't know if you've seen it, Inside Out. Mm, And, you know, because we all want joy. And then, like, throughout the whole movie, the premise is that, like, sadness is not a bad thing. And I think what you're speaking to, like that conversation is so needed because it is, it's like, if someone feels like anxious, like it's okay to feel like anxious and, or, you know, that's also like feeling excitement. It's okay to feel different things. Again, it's like the diagnosis or even down the road medication comes when it's something that, you know, you can't deal with, you can't live your life through, but there are 
so many of us that, yeah, it's like you want to grab that Band-Aid to fix something when it's like, this is just the human experience. Like you're, you know, frustration, sadness, all these things come in your life. Well, exactly. And I think it comes down to our inherent level of fearing discomfort. As this is, of course we do. Nobody, I'm saying like nobody wants to feel discomfort, but just like you practice talking to a therapist or practice talking about your feelings, I should say, can you practice controlled discomfort? right? Is there a way that in your life you can do that? And I feel like the craze of intermittent fasting, which has its own health benefits for sure, or this idea of hot and cold exposure that we're hearing more and more people do, the ice bats or the saunas. I feel like that inadvertently is our society's way of playing with the edges of controlled discomfort. And I have many chances to practice discomfort on a day-to-day basis with my three boys who are constantly giving material for me to say, I feel like, okay, I'm zanned out and I got this and they come home and it all goes to wash. But I'll often tell myself I can be in this discomfort right now. And that's okay because by nature, discomfort should come and it should go just like emotions. Emotions are energy in motion. They come and eventually they'll go, but we get so fixated that we get stuck in the middle. And once we get stuck in the middle, we get stuck in the feeling of, okay, I'm just fine right? And we keep moving on with our day. If there's a parent listening and they are like, well, where do I start with maybe even allowing maybe themselves, this could be for anyone or their kids, like the ability in the space to experience emotions and feelings, even the negative ones. Cause like you said earlier, like for you, you're like, I couldn't be bored in my house. And then when you had kids, you're like, we're not going to be angry. And And I experienced that too, as a kid, there were just like certain things. You didn't feel those things, you know, they were bad. What would you say to those parents? Like where's somewhere they could start? Yeah. I think one of the best ways to start is understanding the difference between a basic emotion and a complex emotion. So a basic emotion is basically exactly what it sounds like. It can't be diluted any further. It can't be deconstructed. And really there's different theories for this, but the four ones that I believe to be true are happiness, sadness, usually fear and anger, happiness, sadness, fear and anger. And if you think about it, most of the times when you walk through life, you're dealing with a complex emotion, which is two or more emotions fused together. Anger could be fear, resentment, rage and frustration all melded together too. Gratitude is also a complex emotion. But I think one of the things that we find difficult is if I asked you how you're feeling, because we're out of practice, we're not only out of practice, but we're out of words. We don't know the words to actually put to our feelings. So you want a really easy thing that you can do right away is download the app Mood Meter. I've got no financial relationship to it. It was designed by somebody out at Yale University, and um, it's only 99 cents, I believe. And basically, you can go through your day, and if you're having an uncomfortable emotion or even a comfortable emotion, it will give you a valence. It will say, what's your energy level, high or low? And then what's your mood, high or low? And you can see tons and tons of words. And just the other day, I couldn't put the right word to what I was feeling. And finally, I looked and like, oh, it's irritated. That's the word. You know, sometimes it's not on the tip of our tongue. But feeling irritated and feeling angry are actually two very different things. Feeling, I call, I say, I'm tired, I'm tired. Am I tired or am I completely depleted? That's a much better word. 
I can do something with that word then. So no matter how old or young your kids are, showing them that app, even my kids who are young as five and seven can see that and start to go, my emotions don't just depend on comfortable versus uncomfortable emotion. They also depend on my energy, what we call your arousal state. Are you really sleepy or are you super highly alert and ready to go after it? That is also a determination of your emotions. And both of those fused together come out with your actual state. So that's a great place to start. Thank you so much for that. I know people are going to want more information on you. So where can people find you and what are you doing on the internet and and work too if someone is in Canada? Yeah, 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 for sure. Exactly. So you can find me on Instagram at the Dr. Shahana on my website at drshahana.com. Come say hi to me at LinkedIn at Dr. Shahana Alibi as well, as well as on Facebook too. And for me, I'm putting out a mental health course and really it's all of my teachings and knowledge. And it's a gift to myself really first, because it's what I am trying to do more of. And I hope that I use language that's relatable because not only have I dealt with hundreds, if not thousands of patients, but I've been the patient as well. So I've kind of seen it from both points of view. And I want to get the dialogue above just you know, just meditate more or just go for walks or just eat, you know, down some fish oil and you'll be fine. Like we have to start understanding the science of emotions in order to what I call train your brain and think better. Awesome. Thank you for that. The title of the podcast is growth over easy. So the last question I ask everyone is what is growth to you? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I'll give a little a little quick story. My son was playing basketball just the other day and I was cooking breakfast and I could see through the windows that it wasn't going well <laughs> and he really hates to lose. So he starts stomping into the house and I guess he didn't make the final basket against my husband and my husband inevitably won. And he's just looking so angry by this point. So he's like, mommy, I lost. I lost. So it's like, okay. I said, what if your losses could be your lessons? And he looked at me and he's only seven, granted. It's like, what does that mean? And we had this conversation about very similar to the premise of this podcast, that if you sunk that basket, you'd be in eating breakfast off to school, wouldn't have thought a second about it. But now that you didn't sink that basket, which one are you spending more time thinking about? He's like the loss. So, well, how do we turn that into a lesson for you? How do we actually say that we welcome it? We congratulate it. Instead of clapping after every sunk basket, we actually say, well, thank goodness that you've tried. Get out there again. Practice more. So for me, growth is about perception. Growth is perception. It's a perception. When you fuse perception with passion and perseverance, that to me is growth. I love that. And what is the lesson in your loss? Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Have a great day. That's it for this episode of Growth Over Easy. One thing that would really help both us and other new potential listeners is for you to rate this show and leave a comment on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Also, make sure to link up with me at lilyrachels.com. I'm Lily Rachels across all social platforms. Please just share this podcast with anyone you think will benefit. Until next time, remember, easy is empty, growth is gold. <laughs>